Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Modern textbook notions of business have been developed in a world of unprecedented economic growth, but this cultural narrative is facing diminishing returns in today's world. Our guest on the first half of today's show is part of an organization that is rethinking the role of business and enterprise in society. We first speak with Donnie McClurkin of the Post-Growth Institute about his upcoming book, How on Earth, Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World by 2050 about the role these type of businesses can play in helping to make meaningful change to seemingly intractable situations brought by immense wealth accumulation and slowing global growth. What does it mean to be a business in today's evolving economy? And what will the landscape look like in the upcoming decade? And then, in the second half of today's show, we're joined by Chris Nelder, a returning guest to The Extra Environmentalist, and also host of The Energy Transition Show. Wait, 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 Energy Transition Show? Justin, what's that? Well, Seth, I'm glad you asked that. It's the first show of many shows on the Extra Environmentalist Podcast Network. And the Extra Environmentalist Podcast Network is being created within the framework of a not-for-profit enterprise that we're talking about with Donnie on the first half of our show. So by the end of today's episode, not only will you have an idea about not-for-profit enterprise in your mind, which is different from a nonprofit or a charity, You'll also have an example of one that's developing through the Extra Environmentalist Audio Network. All this and so much more are waiting for you at the end of this podcast, so stay tuned and get ready for some really exciting stuff. This is the Extra Environmentalist, episode number 89. I'm Justin Ritchie. And I'm Seth Moserkatz. Get ready for a great show. realized in reflecting on my life that I've actually been associated with not-for-profit enterprises for many, many years now. And like most people, perhaps, I hadn't realized that there was a business model behind many of the not-for-profits I had been involved with. So when I worked as a telephone counselor for a group called Lifeline in Australia, they actually have the furniture stores where they sell products to the public and use the revenue that they raise to actually support the life-saving services that they're doing uh, through telephone counselling. And then when I worked with Sydney's Homeless for three years, they were supported in turn by a similar kind of service that was a clothing store, a thrift store. So a lot of the money that was raised from the thrift stores were actually going into services in terms of food provision and homelessness support services. And then I spent 10 years working with the Fred Hollows Foundation, which is an international organization focused on cataract surgery. 
the introduction of intraocular lenses into patients with cataracts and it's a very simple procedure that they now do relatively speaking and they brought in through the development of a new intraocular lens they brought in a product to the market that changed the price point from $360 from memory for an intraocular lens back in the late 80s to around 6 or $7 for the creation of the intraocular lens, which really changed the market in terms of accessibility for cataract surgery. And what was interesting about the Fred Hollows Foundation was that they weren't a typical aid and development organization that comes in, does the surgeries, and then leaves. They actually were interested in building capacity in the countries themselves from an enterprise perspective. So in Eritrea and in South Africa, there are lens factories that actually produce the lens that are being used in the surgery and do so now to the point that those lens factories actually make profits from selling the lenses to other organizations and government service providers and with those profits they can actually support the services of intraocular surgery in itself. So these are the kinds of things in addition to the world's biggest not-for-profit BRAC, a Bangladeshi organization that works with 120,000 employees, services around 100 million people each year in health, education, finance spaces and 80% of its revenue comes from its own commercial enterprises, a dairy, bakeries, and craft stores. These sorts of examples paint a very exciting picture of a not-for-profit world because you start to see the viability of not-for-profit enterprise in terms of service delivery and employment simultaneously. And once you can see that notion of well, we can actually do business sustainably here in terms of uh, financially that doesn't occur in an environment where profits are privatized. You start to glimpse a future which is like a double dividend future, sustainability on a business and financial front and sustainability on an environment front because you're taking out the primary driver of overconsumption, which is financial inequity and social stratification associated with that. So right now we live in a for-profit model world where most businesses are a for-profit model. What does the transition look like moving from a for-profit model to a not-for-profit model world? Does it happen slowly? Does it happen quickly? Is it like a snap and, and then everything changes over? Does government have to be involved? What does that process of change look like? I think we're going to be looking at a transition over the next three, four, five decades to a not-for-profit economy and there will come tipping points in that space say for example a point at which in a positive moving direction not-for-profits start servicing each other in terms of procurement and philanthropy much more so you have a not-for-profit that's operating and actually feeding funds over to actually start up other not-for-profits you're going to see that more and more and there'll be a tipping point associated with that on the flip side we'll see tipping points in relation to awareness around what's happening as we shift away from the for-profit sector and I think you'll see tipping points in relation to resistance. So governments will probably introduce legislation that tries to hold on that little bit longer to an unsustainable model of business. In the for-profit space we'll see subsidies, regulation associated with making it more difficult for not-for-profit. So for example in Australia we have a fundamental difference with US regulation between the two countries in relation to unrelated business income tax for not-for-profits. In Australia currently, a not-for-profit can be set up in the education space and they might be running a health service underneath that or they might be running a clothing company underneath that. And that's 
considered related business income in terms of taxation at the moment. You can have the tax exemptions which cover both of those areas. In the US, you have unrelated business income tax and so different approaches that I think will will come up and will probably make this a slower transition than the world may need to some degree. But the point of any transition is to look at what's already happening in terms of trends and that's where the really exciting things are happening in my opinion. We've seen the rise of not-for-profit enterprise over the last few decades in an incredible way and I think a huge spike of interest in the last few years in social enterprise. Think about social innovation camps. The rise of social enterprise in Eastern Asia, for example, is something that is a very profound influence on global culture and will have a greater influence in global culture as time goes on. So with this rise of not-for-profit enterprise, we've seen in the recent studies done by Johns Hopkins University, some very important data around the not-for-profit contribution to the economy. The not-for-profit sector now contributes 6% of US GDP. That's equivalent, if not more, than the retail sector. And that's something that people often don't realise is the economic contribution of the not-for-profit sector and how that's been on the rise. In fact, not-for-profit enterprise and the growth of not-for-profit enterprises outpaced GDP in the US and elsewhere around the world over the last few decades at a ratio of 5.8% to 5.2% overall growth of GDP. So not-for-profits are on the rise and even more importantly, more and more of not-for-profit revenues are coming from enterprise models rather than from grants or government and philanthropic sources. So we're now seeing in the UK more than 50% of not-for-profit revenue comes from an enterprise model and overall across most of the economies surveyed through the Johns Hopkins University research you're seeing 43% of not-for-profit revenue coming from commercial enterprise models. This is a profoundly different way of doing business and it has important ramifications for entrepreneurs as they come through who are actually considering the not-for-profit enterprise model as the smart way to do business in terms of viability, in terms of running something that's actually going to last and in terms of putting social purpose ahead of private profits. And I think in Canada it's as high as 8% of GDP is not-for-profits. Is that right? 8.1%. Wow. Right. Canada has a, a real inclusion in understanding of the value of the not-for-profit sector. And, and part of that of, is assessing also the value of volunteerism in contributions to the GDP. And perhaps you could even say the whole analysis of this is underestimated to some degree when you take into account the informal sector, you know, the, mm -hmm. the kind of thing that happens with parenting and communal bonds and communal activity, what that actually contributes to GDP is underestimated, misunderstood. And so I would arguably say we're living in a not-for-profit economy already to some degree. It's just that it's not recognized or valued in a way that I think it will be in the future. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask now about why a not-for-profit world, why would that be more sustainable or sustainable at all when dealing with all of our large global challenges like peak oil or climate change? Why would necessarily structuring businesses around a not-for-profit idea be any better? Wonderful question. It essentially comes down to an understanding of what is driving unsustainability. Right now, 80% of the world's population lives in areas where income inequality is rising. What does that mean in practical terms? Well, it means that you have financial inequity that's increasing. And that financial inequity associated with it, a vested interest and power, 
And what that creates is social stratification of an increasing form, an increasing nature. And with that social stratification comes the creation, the manufacturing of aspirations, of status envy, and of necessity for many people. So a lot of the world's population is just trying to survive and has limited choice when it comes to consumption patterns. And a lot of the world is trying to move on up the ladder in large part because of the manufactured aspirations and the endpoints that have been put forward by the capitalistic market of what success is. So stemming from this financial inequity, you see this social stratification and then that social stratification leads into the consumption habits, which are essentially the consumption habits of overconsumption, either through necessity or through aspiration. In other words, any system that centralizes wealth and power will always be unsustainable because of the social dynamic that it drives. Now, the fact is a not-for-profit economy has the potential to reverse that trend for the first time ever because not-for-profit means not for private profit. It means the redistribution of profits back into the original objectives outlined within an organization's bylaws or constitution. That means an end to the ever-growing inequalities that we're seeing in society from a financial perspective, the end of the pressures to actually consume more, to go that step further in terms of your consumption habits, to not understand the economics of enough, and when you take that pressure off by putting the primary purpose as the fulfillment of social needs ahead of the primary purpose being shareholder value maximization or the privatization of profits, you actually change the whole dynamic, the whole raison d'etre, you could say, of an economy. What's an economy for? And it comes back to an economy being something that ensures service provision in the most efficient way, a market economy in the most efficient way, with a different endpoint. The end point being one of well-being and enough and, and fulfillment of needs rather than fulfillment of people's hip pockets. So it's about taking the pressure off and shifting in a different way. And then also there are benefits associated with not-for-profits around sustainability in terms of if you have two companies in front of you and they're both producing a computer and one of them is a not-for-profit company and the other is a for-profit company, which one do you think is going to have built into the system design built-in obsolescence. And of course, it's the for-profit company that is going to have things that they manufacture to actually break down so that people will buy more. A resilient not-for-profit with a smart business plan doesn't need that in its model and it's actually going to build for resilience. So you've got those kinds of angles too that change when it comes to the actual impacts in terms of sustainability in a very practical sense. Now, why would a not-for-profit economy also involve a competitive market economy and aspects of capitalism that many of the guests that we've had on our show say that capitalism is failing, it looks like it's failing? Are there really aspects of the capitalist system that would be part of a not-for-profit world, and why would not-for-profits need to compete in some sort of market economy? This is about transcending capitalism rather than creating alternatives to it. It makes really strategic sense to think about transcending capitalism, post-capitalist futures, rather than futures that aren't capitalistic. And that's because you play into this notion of progress, which is such an important notion that so many hold dear. So if, for example, I was to come out and talk about futures that just rejected capitalism and talking about some kind of alternative system. How 
well am I going to be able to engage with people from a space that they already know and trust? Instead, the Post Growth Institute uses an asset-based approach that looks at all of the things that we see existing that work in terms of deep sustainability or that can help catalyze futures beyond economic growth. And we say, how do we build on those things? Now, capitalism doesn't just sit over in the corner in a box as something that you don't look at in that process. Instead, you look at a capitalistic system and you say, well, what has it created that's really valuable here? I mean, this is the permaculture approach to tractors, for example. You don't look at a tractor and say, well, that's a machine of industrial production that we just can't have in post-growth futures because it's so intensive in terms of its input usage. Instead, you look at it and you say, well, what can we do with that existing infrastructure to actually create the swales we need, to actually create the infrastructures we need for meaningful agricultural production? So you look at capitalism and you say, well, what's it got going for it? It's been able to deliver services to certain people with very great expediency. All we need to do is change the way that that service provision happens in terms of the drivers behind that. So the market has existed ever since human civilization actually came together and started to work in some kind of cooperative form. You had the markets of thousands of years ago where people would trade and barter, but it existed in a not-for-profit framework. It's only a recent phenomenon in the last four or five hundred years that we actually moved to a for-profit world. In fact, for-profit activities were shunned and disdained in historical sense because people understood this association with greed and evil or the detrimental impacts of taking too much. And so drawing from capitalism the best of its ingredients and moving forward, entrepreneurial spirit, the market and its way to deliver is actually a really fundamental tenet of a not-for-profit enterprise world. And that's a really fundamental strategic decision to actually look at how you actually evolve capitalism and say, thank you. Thank you, capitalism. You've taken us into an uneconomic space now, so let's return this into a sphere of being economic in the sense of providing the means for exchange and trade that builds a world of sustainability for us all. I'm wondering how... Back to the transition question, the idea of the tax structure right now is very much built around a for-profit model. Businesses pay money to government in in much the same way they have since this model has been evolved. The not-for-profit world gives a little bit different kind of taxes in, in this way. Could you talk about the way that government will change its role in that kind of way? So if you take the United States, for example, at the moment, around 50% from the last budget 50% of income, government revenue, comes from corporate taxation. So in a not-for-profit world, sure, you're looking at a reduced tax base. Got to keep in mind, though, that 50% of taxes continue or may continue in terms of people continue to pay income tax themselves, personal income tax. You still have revenue-raising bodies, whether it's the person down in your local neighborhood who's actually putting out the tickets for your car parking where you've overstayed your your time on a meter, there's still ongoing forms of revenue, right? And the trick here is to think of government actually developing itself as not-for-profit enterprise simultaneously. So the last 30, 40 years has seen an incredible privatization of uh, government services, the selling off of government services. And to a large extent, government sold off its capital and ability to actually generate its own income. So take some of the more radical proposals you see in post-growth economics about 
renationalizing banks, which is something that we've seen in the past. I mean, arguably, you could say the government is actually, uh, I've heard that line, well, it's, it's not general motors, it's government motors in terms of the bailouts that have happened historically. So imagine that over time, government actually takes back some more control of services and actually moves more to business models in terms of its own service provision. You can then imagine much greater revenue streams for government itself in this process that rely less on taxation from corporates and more on actually earned income itself. This still doesn't get to the overall point though of a not-for-profit economy. Fundamentally, where does a lot of government money go to? It goes to service provision. It's a redistributionary mechanism, taxation, especially progressive taxation, a redistributionary mechanism that tries to create a safety net in welfare states around the world, create a safety net for people that ensures that money is spent on infrastructure and support services so that people can actually survive. What's the point of a not-for-profit? It's to fulfill social needs in order that people can survive and thrive. So with the emergence of a not-for-profit economy, that's less dependent on government grants, you actually see the outcomes that would otherwise have been associated with the welfare state, you see those outcomes being met by a new economic force, an evolving, emerging economic force, a growing economic force that takes up the slack and reduces the pressure on government to actually raise as much revenue through taxation in the first place. So it's a total shifting of the economy and the pressures on the economy that mean taxation, whilst remaining an important issue, is less and less of an issue and more forms of social enterprise actually contribute into the coffers of the state's activities. Can we have large-scale military forces in the same way with a not-for-profit-based economy? I guess the first thing I'd ask in relation to military is what's driving the large-scale support of military and military industrial complexes around the world. And generally, it's this competitiveness for geopolitical control that has been driven out of fear and is associated with the capitalistic market. So if you take the pressure off this competitive nature and we see this shift to an empathic civilization, the rise of consciousness and collectivism, the swinging back of the pendulum from individualism to a more collectivist approach, then my guess is that it's actually just going to be a natural transition away from such incredible investment in military and the military industrial complex and a shift to more innovative structures because innovation is one of the things that is often commonly touted as associated with the military industrial complex. My argument would be that if we took the money that we're, we're using to support military installations and military research around the world and put half of that into not-for-profit innovation in terms of not tied with the privatization of spin-off companies etc we could innovate much much faster it's about moving to the model of open knowledge open access peer-to-peer production rather than the the proprietized knowledge system that the military industrial complex is linked with so I think that it's going to be a natural progression. That one is one that will probably take a lot of time because that's one that's grounded deeply in fear and history and all sorts of things. And it's the, like the last bastion of control that human beings, largely men, are going to hold on to is this notion of force and controlling each other. But there's a fundamental assumption here that I think will shift over the next 30, 40 years. And that is this notion that there is not enough for all of us 
and that we have to compete with each other in order to access that scarcity that exists. Both of those two assumptions, I think, are going to be ones that have reducing importance in the 21st century. You were talking about technology and innovation, and so why would technology and innovation be possible in a not-for-profit model? Because I hear from people that tell me that financial markets and even financial speculation are necessary because they allow investors to invest in up-and-coming technologies and put capital into those upcoming technologies and then develop innovative new technologies that allow investors or innovators to be rewarded for their work on a particular new innovation. And so even though we've detailed many issues with the current models of innovation on our show, is there any truth to that? Does doing away with shareholder ownership get rid of some of the impetus to innovate in what we know as innovation now? I think some of the impetus for present understandings of innovation would decrease. But then I ask myself, what does present innovation actually give us in a practical sense? Well, on the whole, it gives us a whole lot of useless crap. There's some wonderful things that have come out of innovation, but if you look at like the payoff, the amount of money that gets invested in innovation, R&D around the world, I don't think we've actually got that much to show for it. Could a not-for-profit world offer the same level, if not more, innovation? Absolutely, in my opinion. Why? Because firstly, the focus is on the fulfillment of social needs, not the creation of market wants. And that's a fundamental different driver in terms of like high quality innovation. You're not going to see the same kind of useless, redundant technologies emerging just because people know that they can make a dollar out of it in terms of selling people things that they don't need to pay for with money that they don't have. Instead, you're going to see a focus on quality. And here I would look at for example, the open source movement. Who would have thought that a bunch of volunteers around the world would have contributed code in a way that you can develop resilient systems like Mozilla Firefox, for example, which is not-for-profit, that you can create quality infrastructure without the incentive of private financial gain. The open source movement, the way that Innovation has occurred throughout the public system in terms of research through universities around the world, the discovery of things like the double helix that occurred within a not-for-profit environment before we saw this swathe of intellectual property law and this focus on proprietization of knowledge goes to show you can be incredibly innovative in not-for-profit spheres. And we've been duped into thinking that Money is the only way that we're actually going to get the incentives for innovation. That's not what we're seeing now with the rise of crowdfunding in terms of people contributing money to support things through altruism or because they're interested in seeing where innovation might go. Incredible amounts of money are being raised at the drop of a hat now, which is like the alternative to venture capital for the 21st century to some degree. So I think the flatter structures that are often associated with not-for-profits, even, for example, if you think about worker-owned cooperatives, which aren't not-for-profit, but they are a step in that direction. Think about the innovativeness associated with businesses when workers actually have the ability to contribute to what's going on. That was, from my understanding, a whole lot of the success behind the Japanese models of business and innovation. They actually engaged people and encouraged an environment where workers could say when they saw something going wrong on an assembly line, for example. 
That is the future of not-for-profit business. It's where it's more participatory, it's more open, it's more accountable, and it's more rapid and agile. It's where you're not producing using mass capital infrastructure with huge investment requirements. You're looking more at distributed manufacturing. You're looking at people able to contribute to core competencies, core kernels of knowledge, and then iterate and create various versions themselves out of a core model. It's going to be a total shift starting with where we already are and what we're already seeing from 3D printing and distributed manufacturing, it's going to be a total shift in terms of this understanding of profits needing to drive innovation into the next century. So as far as technology goes, it would be less emphasis on things like constant smartphone upgrades, constant pressure to add new features to smartphones every year. Otherwise, your stock price tanks as a company if you don't do that and more on useful things for the good of society. Absolutely. I think there will be a shift towards more appropriate technologies, ones which are environmentally more benign, more grounded in local resources, local control, etc. I think, though, that there's that project which is being put out there at the moment, phone blocks, which is talking about the different components of a phone and whether or not we could actually have a more flexible system in terms of the componentry and the ability to put different parts together to suit one's needs. I think whether or not that kind of thing is technically feasible is a mute point, but I think that's where we're going to move more towards is iterative design, customized design that's relocalized, and to products that really do try to close the loop a lot more and avoid this throwaway society that, that we've become hooked on. And I think there will also be a saturation point when it comes to communications. I think we're starting to see this around the world where people are saying, well, I want a bit more of my time to myself. I don't want to be 24-7 when it comes to my work and my relationship with my boss. I want to actually have more time to myself and where technology is taking me at the moment is in the opposite direction. So I think that at certain points people will continue to understand that with an economics of enough, there is also an economics of well-being, that those two things go hand in hand. And speaking about technology, you come from a background in nanotechnology. I'm wondering how this helped to translate into the work you're doing now. I had the privilege of spending eight years looking at nano innovation around the world and looking at what was happening on the cutting edge of science in countries as far flung as Thailand, Brazil, and the US and parts of Europe. The conclusion I came to, having the ability to assess cutting edge innovation around the world was that we are not able to innovate fast enough to decouple that economic growth from environmental detriment. That's looking at all the things that are happening around the world. I couldn't find any evidence to suggest we could innovate our way out of the problems we're facing at the moment. This isn't to say there aren't ways forward that involve innovating further in areas like nanotechnology. I'm particularly encouraged by what's called poor man's nanotechnology in Thailand. Small infrastructural costs in terms of buy-in, using bottom-up design, biomimicry, and combining these things to actually create meaningful products around energy efficiency and water purification. There is a place for emerging science in a not-for-profit economy. But what I found was we actually need to innovate without economic growth. And it's even more important that we think about innovation in these processes of the economy because innovation agendas are set so far in advance. It's almost as if, if as a society, we decided we wanted to shift to post-growth futures tonight, we'd still have a lag associated with the innovation trajectories that have already been invested in. 
because a company in the for-profit space will put money in or even a, a university research center will put money in and have started trials testing R&D and they're not going to just drop that overnight. So by looking at cutting edge innovations, I was actually able to look at where society is going to be policy-wise and outcome-wise in five, ten years, more or less. And that's where I saw, right, we're still addicted very much to growth. Power is concentrating through the use of intellectual property in certain parts of the world. So in this phenomenon of the 1% is actually just being perpetuated even more and at a faster rate driven by the way that we're engaging with technological innovation in the mainstream. But at the fringe is this emerging alternative approach to innovation that is open access, open knowledge, peer-to-peer production, sharing of resources in terms of collaboration and physical resources, and a very exciting approach to innovation because of the potential for a tipping point at some point. Once you have knowledge out there, it's very hard to take it back, back from that sphere. And that's the exciting thing that if you did a SWOT analysis of post-growth futures, you'd have to put in the strength space is there is an arc of the economic system based on the information communications technology revolution that bends towards openness and it can't bend back the other way. It's that whole story that emerges when people use Napster and realize that something they used to pay for and get in an album at a music store is now available digitally online. And even if you shut down Napster, people still have that expectation and it leads to things like the iTunes store and BitTorrent and so many other things. So I can see how that would develop. So my next question then is if we decided to move towards not-for-profit world in a pro growth future, how would you take the big, powerful, for-profit actors and turn them into not-for-profit models? Like, would they have some sort of leveraged buyout where they take their shares and then buy them back from investors? Or would these big companies like, you know, a Pepsi or something just fall apart? And then what emerges to meet that actual market need, if a market need existed at all, or a social need existed at all? something else would rise up? How do you see that kind of playing out? Well, you've outlined the two real alternatives there. Either the companies collapse. At the moment, for example, 10% of businesses across the US collapse each year and 10% emerge. So you have this constant flow that, that not many people are aware of, of a cycling through an economy of businesses. And so as we've seen in the US and elsewhere in the world, big companies do collapse. Eastman Kodak, you know, is one of the ones more recently and so some companies will just get outcompeted and they will not be aware of it enough until it's too late. And it may already be too late in terms of the, the way things have been set up in terms of debt and relationships within for-profits that even if they got on board with the not-for-profit message, it might be too late. The other avenue is the one that I think is most exciting that you mentioned there, Justin, in terms of transition. So imagine right now you are the CEO of Pepsi and I look at your budgets with you we sit down along with the chief financial officer and we say, okay, here's our income and here's our expenditure. Over in the expenditure column, we see there there's, let's say, a 4% dividend that is being paid out to shareholders. But Pepsi's been floated for a long time. It had its startup revenue through an IPO a long time way back. And they have now fixed assets around the world that actually have real value, whether it's actual bottles of drink or owning plants that produce these products, or whether it's actually office infrastructure. 
And then, of course, they've got their human infrastructure too in terms of their human capital. So right now, there's not actually like a link. If a share price goes up or down, the real value of Pepsi shouldn't actually be affected by that in real terms. So I look at the 4% that you're paying out and I essentially say, what would you do with 4% more in your budget? And someone in a for-profit space might say, well, I'll use that more for marketing or I'll pay salaries, etc." And I say, would you like to have that extra 4%? And they say, yes. And that makes sense because it's like they're leeching out money for something that's not actually giving them anything more than just consumer support in a space. You know, if a share price drops dramatically, then the real value does get affected at some point because of the support in terms of customer base. The point of all this is big companies at the moment that are listed on the share market are actually leeching out a fair amount of their profits and they're doing so without getting much in return for that. So like you said, like Dell just took the company private, you would look at a long-term strategy, say 40, 50 years of actually taking the company private, but at the end of taking it private, instead of going private, you actually take it not for profit. And you do that because then you're never having to actually pay out individuals as you go on. You get the freedom that Mozilla says they have as a not-for-profit to innovate in the way they want. You actually then change the game in terms of what your primary purpose is. Pepsi might be to produce beverage products that actually support human well-being. And without that profit motive, who knows what would happen? Who knows what would happen in terms of innovation, in terms of the structure of hierarchy within the organization? All things are possible when you open up that realm of not-for-profit business. Now, let's say like if I'm the CEO of a big company and I start thinking and you sit down and talk with me and you explain that the whole human civilization needs to get on a track towards sustainability and that not-for-profits are the way to do that. And you show me that 4% that I could then have to innovate or use in my business, I might be sold. But if I start thinking about that and I start making an actual plan to transition to a not-for-profit model, probably my share price is going to crash and probably I'm going to get fired as CEO as soon as I start talking about turning my company into a not-for-profit business. Wouldn't that be the case? Absolutely. So this is the challenge that simultaneously needs to be addressed through the broader ecosystem and the change in understanding in that ecosystem. So some CEOs, and, and perhaps not of the Fortune 500, but some CEOs might be able to go to shareholders and say, look, here's what we're seeing in terms of the trends of not-for-profits out-competing us. So if you want to actually have this company not collapse on you, you want to participate in this buyback scheme. In other words, you want to take your money out of the company now and we'll offer you a higher rate, you know, a decent buyback term and you can invest that money elsewhere, etc., and perpetuate the for-profit economy. But we're actually making a decision in your interest so that we don't collapse. So that's one angle you can take in the argument here. The other, though, is that you're going to need to see this notion of shareholder value maximization change over time. And it's going to be the awareness that comes through governments, regulation associated with that, and from within industry itself. Just last week, I was talking at Sustainable Brands New Metrics Conference, where a lot of members of the Fortune 500 were there, represented by their heads of sustainability and corporate social responsibility. And I thought I'd get up, I talked about this stuff, I thought that I would get a pretty hostile reception, but I didn't. And it's because even if the nitty-gritty details of how you actually work as a CEO or someone in senior management interested in shifting to a not-for-profit enterprise aren't worked out yet, 
because there are legal ramifications even about thinking about this stuff and putting it into plans. And yes, your share price might dive. And so that's going to affect your viability as a business anyway. Even if that's the case, the fact is this is such a nascent conversation and I don't hold anywhere near all the ideas in this space, barely any of them, just the seeds of what I see in terms of not-for-profit world. So I have full faith that as this idea cottons on, which I'm seeing it cotton on more and more, that people will come up with creative ideas, You know that people might start to bring in 20-year expiry terms on shares, for example. They might actually look to build in buyback processes as part of an economy that understands limits better. As we move away from proprietized knowledge, for example, I see that being a parallel trend with proprietized business. So I think that I don't have many of the answers in that space. It's an area that a couple of people on our team are exploring. We've got an economist who's looking into this in greater detail. And as someone without an economics background, I can only speculate. But I think there are going to be a lot of things changing simultaneously. And each of those will have impacts on the other to the point that at some stage, things may move very quickly in this space. And the fear from a CEO of, of being held to account and basically being in a straitjacket is actually going to shift over time as well. So in a lot of ways, the things you're talking about seem to me an evolution of the human mindset, a maturing, a growing up a thinking about business as an adult rather than from a childlike perspective. Is this what the next step of human business is going to look like? The next step of human maturity is going to look like? Yes and no. I think yes in the sense that there's an evolving consciousness, evolving research, whether it's books like The Penguin and The Leviathan, that are looking at cooperativeness and and a greater understanding of how cooperativity is actually a, a very fundamental part of human nature. But I think if my argument about not-for-profit enterprise emerging relied on sort of a higher consciousness and evolving consciousness, then I think we may as well give up now because it's not going to happen by itself fast enough given we push through limits to growth in 1982, around that period, that we've been living on the reserves and cutting into our overall capital in relation to the Earth's biosphere since that point. So what I think is particularly compelling about the not-for-profit enterprise model is its inevitability, is the fact that the very market that is the problem driver behind our environmental ills actually has its own inbuilt tendency towards a shift towards something that is more sustainable. So with resource pressures at the moment, we've seen in part contributed from that, the falling profit margins across most sectors in the US, for example, over the last 30, 40 years. Now what happens when those profit margins move to zero? Well, you have two companies sitting next to each other that produce your smartphone and you've got a situation where the profitability is at zero. Which one can survive indefinitely? Only the not-for-profit. The for-profit, through the pressures that are set up in the system in which it participates, has pressures to make profits in an ongoing way and can't steady state. A not-for-profit can. And that is why... It's not just about rising consciousness, it's about an inevitability where for-profits will be squeezed out of the market and we'll see a natural shift towards a not-for-profit economy. Now, whether that can happen fast enough, how much we need to play an active role in encouraging that and ensuring that that flourishes with the minimum amount of disruption is an important point to consider. But I think the inevitability is the trick here 
tied in with the rising empathic civilization and the swinging back towards collective action. Now, you mentioned that part of the reason why you see this emerging is the continued and growing interest in social entrepreneurship, and it has been really fascinating to see how quickly it's grown, but a lot of the discussion in the social entrepreneurship space is about balancing profit with the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit, and so why would the not-for-profit model work better than this triple bottom line assessment of sustainability? Because the triple bottom line still plays into driving financial inequity. And so it doesn't matter how much your organizations are working to improve environmental efficiencies or reduce the levels of waste to close looper system or to focus on social outcomes in relation to poverty or inequality of various forms. If in the very company itself, you're actually driving that financial inequality through large wage differentials. And you see, this is where a lot of people don't put the dots together. They work for a major bank or a major corporation. They go overseas. They see poverty in another country. They return. They set up an orphanage or some kind of fundraising in the aid and development space. Or even in their own community, they set up a program to work with the homeless, to to work with people in need. But they don't then join the dots and say, how is that need originally created? and realize that it's created often by their for-profit initiatives with which they're associated. So you're essentially just trying to balance out a ledger which can't be balanced out. Not-for-profits change that dynamic. They essentially close the system, they create that resilience around the system by reducing the pressures that are initially creating the problems that lots of good-intentioned social entrepreneurs are trying to address at the moment. So there's lots of encouraging forms in terms of the interest and passion people have, whether it's B corporations, whether it's community interest companies, whether it's various forms of social enterprise. And I think some of those can be stepping stones, but some of them also present ceilings in terms of moving towards worlds where you're still privatizing profits, even though you're doing social good. So I really have strong feelings against the kind of proposals that people like Richard Branson put out there, that you can have people, planet, and private profits, which is essentially what they're saying here. And so I talk more about a future with a different triple bottom line, a variation on the triple bottom line, and that is people, planet, and not-for-profits. And remember, not-for-profits can make as much profit as they want, they just can't privatize that profit. And so I very much believe in a future with people, planet, and profits, but it's people, planet, and not-for-profits that is the fundamental structure underlying that triple bottom line. I'd like to get your idea of what a world that incorporates not-for-profits looks like, what a day-to-day life of a person living in this kind of world is, and how countries relate to one another, and how people of the world kind of get along. The great thing about a not-for-profit world is that, in some senses, it wouldn't look that different from our existing societies. It's just that you would see a lot less in terms of wasteful consumption, a lot less in terms of the actual accumulation of goods, and you would see a much greater distribution and participation across all spheres of society. So for me, it's the participatory economy. It's one where people actually have human agency. So from the second you wake up in the morning on top of the bed that was produced by a not-for-profit, you go to your school system or you go to your form of education or your form of your workplace, and in each of those places... There is the absence of the driver of private profit underlying the motivations for your engagement. 
So you're not at school to get an education so that you can get a job and contribute to the economy in a for-profit way. You're at school, if it's in a formal setting, so that you can learn about life, learn where you can add value and where you can contribute to this world in terms of the fulfillment of social needs, not in terms of social needs plus private profits or how do I make a million dollars. And this is a fundamental difference. You know, imagine everywhere you go, your engagement with people you know is not driven by the private profit motive. So when you hand over the money to the person in the computer store, you hand over the money to the baker, you know that your money is supporting employment and livelihoods through that. And you know that anything extra that's made by that business, if they're running a successful business, is going to be going back into supporting your community, supporting the initiatives of fulfilling social needs. And this is fundamental stuff in terms of the way it works. You look at Michael Schumann's data in this space in terms of the value of local economies. A not-for-profit world holds at its heart local economies, local economies that reinvest, support locally, and don't externalize costs and risks and take out money from that local space as happens now. So you'd see it thriving. The amount of interactions, I imagine, would happen in a not-for-profit world would be much greater in the West than exists at the moment. You'd see a much greater reduction in incidence of mental illness, for example, because of that human connection that we would see emerge as the local economy thrives. And you see this in lots of towns and cities around the world, in the U.S., I come from Ashland, Oregon at the moment, where there is a huge focus on the local economy. And what it does for human well-being, it's hard to even measure. It's something that you have to feel and experience. And that's one of the other great things about this shift towards a not-for-profit world. What does it look like? It looks like fun. It looks like connection and the kinds of things that so many people repeatedly say that they're missing and they're looking for in their lives. And often those things get put out there in a sort of a pipe dream, idealistic way, you know, the strength of community and resilience. Well, the great thing about a not-for-profit world is that it marries that in with a global macro economy that still functions. The nation state and sovereignty in relation to the nation state plays less of an importance because so much of that is tied up with the overall health of a global economy. But when you use the asset-based approach and you build local economies and regional economies, you take the pressure off countries to feel like they have to compete with each other. And you can actually then look more to a cooperative economy on a global scale where it's not for profits, sharing ideas, working with the primary purpose. I need to come back to that. The primary purpose of a not-for-profit is the fulfillment of social needs. So an international not-for-profit that's working in manufacturing is going to be much more open to cooperation with an international not-for-profit elsewhere because they don't see each other in that competitive way because of their primary purpose having shifted. So this is a fundamental difference that means a not-for-profit world is much more fun, innovative, progressive, and redistributionary. One last question here. I'm wondering as you go into different schools and different businesses and talk to people all over the world about these ideas, what have been the actual on-the-ground reactions to people hearing these ideas? Have you had any emotional reactions? Have you had any like, oh, wow, that's really, really smart. That's a really great idea. The reactions we've been receiving to this notion of not-for-profit enterprise as the central business model of the emerging economy have been amazing. It's like a homecoming for some people. I think the Occupy movement showed so many people are looking for an alternative, something that within which there can be many, many, many differences and many, many forms, but overall gives an alternative beyond capitalism and the destructive effects of our present-day systems. 
So people come up to us after talks and say, wow, like you've really opened my eyes. I had people at the conference I was at a few weeks ago come up to me and say, I run a for-profit business. I've been running it for a while, but I so believe in what you're saying that I would like to shift my business over to not-for-profit. How do I do it? So people are feeling the seed here of something that makes sense actually allows them to be entrepreneurial and feel good about being entrepreneurial beyond this notion of social enterprise because I I think fundamentally here we're tapping into that collectivism that you mentioned earlier, Seth, like that deeper consciousness that if we keep privatizing things in this world, including profits, that we're actually competing against ourselves in a way that just doesn't make sense. So the not-for-profit economy, and I think what we tap into in sharing this with people, is that it's really about expanding your notion of self. If you think of self as yourself as an individual, then you're contributing essentially to a world that is driving that direction towards destruction. But when you expand your notion of self and consider our connection within that, then you can really do a lot of things for yourself in ways that are very supportive of the entire macro system. So it's been incredibly encouraging. I've talked to audiences that have had hardcore activists all the way through to venture capital and banking officials, etc. And amazingly, everyone wants to talk after this. Everyone wants to have a conversation. And I think it's because it's an opportunity whose time is coming and one where we all get to contribute. We all get to be involved in setting up not-for-profits, running not-for-profits, and being part of deep sustainability when it comes to financial and economic systems. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Donnie. And so now I just wanted to give you the chance to close out with any last thoughts and also to tell people how they can get involved in finding out more about the book, more about not-for-profit business models, and more about your work. In the next 40 to 50 years, not-for-profits will outcompete for-profits across every sector. That's something that we at the Post-Growth Institute believe may be an inevitability. It's an exciting trend because it gives us an opportunity to actually engage with our businesses in new ways, to take our entrepreneurial spirit and to put that in a framework of an economics of enough, an economics of deep sustainability. So I'd encourage people to learn more about not-for-profits, to engage with our work at postgrowth.org, to keep an eye out for our book, How on Earth, and to drop us a line with your thoughts about these things. Ask your tough questions. We've got a lot of tough questions that we've still got to work out, particularly around the share market and the relationship between that and not-for-profits. But I think the trends, the excitement, the energy that we're seeing around the world is towards a world that will work. Now, we just need to hope and work towards that being something that happens before it's too late. Listening to episode number 89 of The Extra Environmentalist. Next up, we speak with Chris Nelder about his new show on energy transition as part of the Extra Environmentalist Audio Network. I can't 
one of the exciting things that we've been working on at The Extra Environmentalist for about the last six months now has been an idea that Seth and I have had for quite some time, and that's making a podcast network that is much bigger than just the regular, you know, once a month or once whenever it comes out, Extra Environmentalist podcast into a reality and into something that pulls in all of the important threads of these various topics that we've covered on our show at at different times into the kinds of formats that can get the kinds of attention that they deserve. That's right. Justin and I have many, many ideas, and the fact that there's only two of us is kind of a limiting thing. And so we wanted to go and investigate a lot of different ideas. We wanted to let these extra environmentalist notions permeate through lots of different avenues. And we thought the best way to do this was to create a not-for-profit podcast network of our very own. So the first of what will soon be quite a few of our partner shows is on the topic that pulls in to so many of our extra environmentalist episodes on energy transition. And we're extremely happy to have Chris Nelder, a fantastic accomplished energy analyst and writer and journalist on energy transition, hosting this first show on our network, the energy transition show is its name. And Chris is with us today to talk a little bit about the ideas of the energy transition show that he'll be hosting. Chris, are you out there? I am here. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us, Chris, and thanks for being the pioneer to host this first show on the network. And I just wanted to start out by asking what leads you to want to do a show on energy transition in the first place? Uh, Well, I felt like the energy transition subject itself really needed a dedicated vehicle to cover it. There's certainly plenty of podcasts out there that talk about energy or that talk about transition in one fashion or another, but I really felt like there needed to be a show that was just simply dedicated to that subject because it's a very complicated subject unto itself and it has a lot of unique challenges to it, a lot of interesting technical problems involved in it. It touches on a lot of different topics, not only energy, but also economics and particularly macroeconomics and it touches on policy and it touches on a lot of things. So I I really felt like there was a need for a show that would really just focus on that subject and elaborate on it and dig into some of those important technical questions. It's going to be a pretty geeky show, (laughs) but I think there are just enough energy geeks out there that'll be interested in it. Yeah. And I know a few of those energy geeks personally. Could you talk us through some of the themes of the, maybe the first few shows? I'm excited to hear what, what they might be. Yeah, the very first show is going to be about the so-called war on coal. And we're going to talk about coal on the grid and what the challenges are within the coal sector. In the subsequent episodes, we're going to talk about the German energy vendor, the energy transition that Germany is doing. We talk about oil and gas in a couple of episodes. And we talk about some of the technical challenges involved in grid power markets as well as the sort of changes that are going on within the market, the grid power markets themselves, restructuring the markets, what sorts of changes are needed to support renewables, what sort of percentages we might be able to hope that renewables can get to in terms of grid power. And as time goes on, we'll be tackling some of the other subjects too about how we get into ultimately replacing petroleum, which is a a really difficult challenge. It's much harder than grid power 
And we'll get into some of the macroeconomic questions as well as some of the really particularly thorny problems in grid power, where getting renewables onto the grid requires not only changes in the markets, but it requires technical changes in the ways that the grid is operated. And that can get real wonky real fast. But hopefully we'll keep it accessible enough that people who are maybe casual observers, not quite full-blown energy geeks, will still be able to get into it. Yeah, and a lot of the vision that has compelled Seth and myself to work on the Extra Environmentalist for quite some time has been that of just being disappointed with media in general and wanting to produce media now that the means of production for media are much more accessible than they were in the past where you had to be on a major network in order to produce a show and just because of the economics of setting up a you know giant broadcast station and all the redundancies required for that were so high it limited the kind of scope and reach of what you could cover in a show and so I think the exciting thing now is that making a, a podcast is still not free or cheap but it's certainly more accessible and so we can do a show that has the kind of detailed focus that you're going to bring on energy transition Chris, with your show, because it's all about furthering education. And so that leads me to ask about kind of philosophical influences you have in in journalism or or in media and how that fits into your long-term vision for the show. Mm, That's a great question. You know, I've always been the kind of person that really likes to dig into a subject and really likes a thorough explanation. You know, I'm, I'm very dissatisfied with sort of surface level explanations of things or just very quick sort of soundbite approaches to especially these kinds of really complicated problems. And that's oftentimes what you get. I mean, you know, you tune into the news or or a CNBC broadcast or something like that, and you're going to get just a very brief, very surface explanation of what's going on and maybe in the oil markets. You know, why are oil prices higher? Why are they low? Or who's overproducing, and then that's it. Like, there's no context. It doesn't explain to you, well, this is actually a really complicated subject involving supply and demand and production cost and consumer price tolerance and, you know, reserves and production and all that kind of stuff. And so I think listeners and readers and and watchers are, are just not well served by the mainstream media on these really complicated subjects. So I really wanted to be able to have a chance to really dig into those things and explore them in their full complexity. And also, I tend to prefer pundits and presenters and writers who explore things in depth. You know, I like long form journalism. I really loathe the 300 word hot take that now seems to just totally dominate journalism because it doesn't tell you anything. So you're not going to be the BuzzFeed of energy transition. We are not going to be the BuzzFeed of energy transition. (laughs) We're not going to be the fast money of energy transition. Fast is not what it's all about. Short is not what it's all about. These are complicated subjects. And if you really want to understand them, you got to take the time to really explore the subject and to put it in the proper context. I really like the idea of you leading us through this, you know, energy transition that we're in as we're moving through the end of the fossil fuel era in the 21st century. I kind of like the idea of, of your calm voice guiding us through this. So we have been trying to aim for uh, a shorter show on the Extra Environmentalist. Our shows often go, you know, two hours in length and in your show, Chris, we want to aim for a little bit of a shorter length of show. 
a more of an energy bite sized show, something that people can get in and get out of with relatively little time investment. Can you tell us a little bit about the format of your show? Like what can people expect as far as segments, as far as interviews? What kind of elements are we going to see? Well, I'll have one interview typically per show, and that interview will go about a half an hour. I'm not going to be too worried about exactly how long it goes. You know, the conversation will follow its own course, hopefully, and take about as long as it takes. I'll offer some commentary on the topic of the week. There will also be a little segment of news and topically appropriate song clips that people might enjoy. Yeah, very cool. So let's just dive in here to a little bit of a sketch of some of the topics of of those first shows and about energy in general and talk about the narrative of energy transition in in the world today in in 2015. We're talking here, you know, in mid-September of 2015, and it's looking like in the global macro picture that China's growth rate is slowing down. They're they're hitting a bit of a trend change that's different from the rapid growth that's really been part of China's economy since the mid-90s. And all of the countries like Brazil and, you know, the so-called emerging market economies are also facing some trouble in their economic growth rates. And that's causing a huge impact on commodity markets. So could you talk about what energy transition means in that kind of global macro context? Yeah, it's a really fascinating and, and super important thing. And, and I think actually the whole demand trend being much weaker than expected is something that, you know, mainstream pundits have only recently begun to really appreciate. It was August 2014 when I started noticing that China's demand for oil in particular had started to taper off. I mean, it was still growing, but at a much slower rate than it had before. At the time, the only thing anybody was talking about was the supply side stuff. Nobody was really looking at demand, and everybody was assuming that China's demand in particular was going to keep surging forward as it had been for for quite some time. But the problem is that China has been the world's marginal buyer of pretty much every commodity. And when they started slowing down, it would have serious implications for global commodity markets and really for all commodities. And I started tweeting about that in August of 2014, and I don't remember getting much in the way of response. But sure enough, it was right around that time that the oil price slowly started to decline, and then it really started to fall in September. And around that time, most pundits were pointing at OPEC and accusing them of a production increase, which in fact they hadn't done. OPEC's production stayed pretty much flat year over year. While the U.S., in fact, and Canada were still producing more and more every month. So the oil glut that really started to develop in Q4 of 2014 was really driven by weak Chinese demand. And that's something that most pundits were just not even recognizing at that point. It was still all about a sort of an OPEC versus the U.S. narrative. And then when OPEC finally met in November and decided not to cut production to support prices, then the OPEC versus the U.S. narrative got even stronger, and still nobody was looking at demand. So now what we have is a situation where we've had a full year of price declines across the board in commodities, all fuels, metals, industrial metals, precious metals, soft commodities, even grains, which have all now fallen down to the 2009 recessionary lows. And that's not something that happens when you have a healthy global economy. 
And of course, commodities are always a forward indicator. They're a leading indicator of, of the health of the global economy. So noticing that happening back in early August of 2015, I started sending out a lot of tweets again, which didn't get much response, saying, people, look at this giant divergence between equity markets and commodities, and look at the levels that the commodities are now at. It's now at the 2009 lows. We should normally expect this gap to close. And so that either has to happen by commodity prices coming back up, and I don't see how that can happen when demand is so weak across the board, or it'll happen with equity markets falling. And of course, it was four to five weeks later that, that we had various stock market crashes all around the world, and the stock market continues to be very weak. So that was absolutely as I expected. So the risk now, and I think people are now beginning to finally appreciate the weakness in China. You know, I mean, they've, they've had a year to catch on to the story, but of course, nobody pays attention to anything except price and especially equity prices. So what we have now is some indication that the weak economy in China and Brazil and, and the other major emerging markets is telling us that there really is a strong deflationary trend here that's starting to pull the global economy down. And from an energy transition standpoint, that can be it's really a good news, bad news story. I mean, on the one hand, if the world is indeed falling into this deflationary vortex, it'll mean that we're, we'll burn less fossil fuels than we expected. And at the same time, as wind and solar are now becoming cheaper than fossil fuels, it would likely mean that the share of renewables will actually grow faster than expected because on a percentage basis, you know, fossil fuels are falling. So that could be a good thing. But it would also mean that fossil fuel prices are going to stay cheaper than anyone expected so that there's now a risk that if that deflationary trend becomes sort of priced in, if everybody's expecting deflation to remain in place and it turns out to be less severe than it's expected, we could actually see fossil fuel use creep back up right when people expect it to keep falling, which could actually result in tighter supply and demand balances in the future and price spikes. So that's a real risk. And it could also mean that the build out of renewables and efficiency that we're all expecting as a part of this ongoing energy transition that's been underway for at least a decade now would actually proceed more slowly than expected because all kinds of economic activity are slowing down. So it may mean that in the future, capital formation is harder to do. Projects are harder to get organized. It's harder to get various funders involved in backing these projects. And finally, it could also mean that it becomes increasingly difficult to, to fund the kinds of adaptation and, and mitigation measures that we've been counting on to address the problem of climate change. And so it could actually leave the world more exposed to some of the more ugly default pathways in climate change scenarios. That's a whole lot of information, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Don't get me started. Oh, man. So... What you're telling us is that we shouldn't go out and buy a new F-250 pickup truck is basically what I'm hearing you say. I'm also interested to hear more about the uh, renewables take that you were mentioning there. The coming on of the renewable markets that try to help mitigate some of this fossil fuel overload almost, it doesn't sound like it's going to happen as much as we had hoped for. I don't think it will. I really yeah. don't. And in fact people who have been reading my stuff or the stuff of people sort of in my corner of the intellectual world 
for the last decade would not be surprised to hear any of this because it's been sort of part of our scenarios for a long time that as fossil fuels started to deplete and got harder to produce, that the price would go up and that that would actually act as a break on the global economy and that ultimately that would turn into a deflationary undertow. And that's in my view, exactly what's happened. And in fact, it would have been far more evident over the past decade, but for the financial crash in 2008, which in my view was absolutely related to the rising cost of fossil fuels and all other commodities, which of course the price of those commodities is all related to the fundamental cost of the fossil fuels needed to produce them. And It also means that that deflationary force would have been taking the world economy down much more than it did. But in 2008, with the global financial meltdown, the world turned to quantitative easing. You know, we turned to all sorts of financial games, not just QE, but really all sorts of data games that are being played to sort of hide the fact that global economic growth has been weak. And so we've managed to pump up the stock market without materially improving the welfare of your average rank-and-file worker. Wages have been stagnant. We've had a lot of full-time jobs turn into part-time jobs. We've had a general decline, really, in overall wealth, except for the very top of the 1%. So in my view, all of those things that we did to try to recover from the financial meltdown in 2008 uh, basically served to paper over what was already a weak trend in economic activity worldwide, really, except for China and the emerging markets. And now that they've actually started to slow down too, it's starting to raise its ugly head again. So, you know, this concept of the deflationary vortex has been on our minds for years, years. And I think that we're actually potentially going to start to see it exposed now. Yeah, we did our first show on the deflationary vortex idea back in in 2012, and we've done a few shows on it since then. And those underlying dynamics were definitely possible for quite some time. And it's just taken years and years to actually see it play out. So one of the consequences of a world where commodity prices are low, and we have now in the middle of September of 2015, we're at $45 a barrel for WTI oil. What does that mean for, you know, Saudi America hopes for U.S. production for, you know, us overtaking Saudi Arabia as the world's oil producing leader here in the next few years? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, the the very phrase Saudi America sort of tells it all, doesn't it? I mean, (laughs) yeah, U.S. shale production was always overhyped and it was always driven by debt, large amounts of debt a lot of which has now turned into junk bond debt. And I think it was necessary to tell this whole story, to create this whole narrative of Saudi America, basically in order to keep the debt coming, in order to sustain the production. It was necessary to create this whole hallucination of U.S. energy independence in order to get investors excited and keep that money rolling in so that these, this debt-fueled drilling would continue. And, you know, I mean, all you had to do was take a minute and think about it and go, well, okay, let's say the U.S. does become the number one producer of oil in the world. So what? What does that actually mean? Nobody ever showed 
that the U.S. would be able to completely eliminate its oil imports. We were always going to be a net importer of oil. So does being the world's top producer mean anything except maybe allowing you to beat your chest and say we're number one? Uh, No. (laughs) The United States does love being its chest. I mean, let's be real. Yes, we do. We, We love to get out the big foam finger and say we're number one. And what does it mean to say that we're on track to become energy independent? If you actually dig into the models that were put forward to say that we could become energy independent, the way those models actually work is that they add up all the BTU of all different forms of energy that we import and we export to the point at which we become a net exporter on a BTU basis. We could say that we're energy independent. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. I mean, it sort of implies that ultimately it would help with our trade balance, maybe. But that's about it. We're still going to be importing a lot of energy from other countries, mainly in the form of oil. And we're still going to be exporting a lot of energy to other countries, mainly in the form of coal, under those energy independence, quote unquote, scenarios. And neither of those is a good thing. We would still be dependent on OPEC, for example, to supply that net imported oil that we still need. And we would still be exporting that coal to China, which is really a horrible thing from a climate standpoint. So these talking points of energy independence, Saudi America, the shale gale, and so on, all of this was just propaganda. I mean, it is important and significant that the U.S. managed to apply a new combination of old technologies that have been around for a long time and figure out how to crack the code to produce oil and gas from shale. But it turns out that it's very expensive to do that. Turns out that nobody was able to do it on a cash flow basis and it required them accumulating a great deal of debt to keep it going. And when oil prices crashed starting in Q4 of 2014, There were a lot of people, myself included, who thought that U.S. production would taper off pretty quickly because of that, because it wouldn't be possible to sustain drilling rates and eventually the rapid decline rates of of the shale wells would overtake the lower rate of new wells being drilled. That didn't really happen as expected right away, primarily because all of these producers were able to go back out to the capital markets and raise another load of fresh debt or issue equity or what have you. How were they able to do that? Like, Who were they able to convince that that was going to be a good idea? Banks, private investors, all sorts of people. That was always a possibility that I had considered. I just didn't think that the capital markets would have the kind of appetite that they did. And part of that, I think, was because a lot of them had a lot of money riding on it already. And to them, it was better to sort of double down on that and say, okay, we'll we'll give you another six months or nine months extension to ride out this period of low oil prices. And then when oil prices come back up, everybody will be back in the black and we'll be fine again. But in fact, that hasn't happened. And so I think that if oil prices remain anywhere near current levels for you know the rest of 2015, this is going to end in tears for a lot of lenders. It really is. There's, going, there's already been significant losses taken. There's already been a number of small companies go bankrupt. 
there's already been a great deal of trade going on in terms of especially the majors, but also some of the smaller companies selling off assets in order to raise capital, in order to support the dividends that they must continue to pay out if they want to keep their investors happy. You know, if you just look at the mere production levels of U.S. oil, it looks like, hey, everything's fine. I mean, yeah, you know, it's dropped a little bit since April, but they're producing a lot more than everybody thought and it's going to be fine. Well, it's not fine. What's been swept under the rug here is a massive load of debt and the quality of that debt has gotten worse and worse. And a lot of it's been downgraded to junk and more of that will happen yet. There was a report recently, I remember an article by Ed Crooks in the Financial Times in particular, showing that U.S. listed independent oil and gas companies spent $32 billion more in the first half of 2015 than they brought in. That's a $32 billion loss for the first six months of the year. And, you know, that compares to a $37.7 billion loss for the whole of 2014. And so, you know, as Ed rightly points out, this will lead to a rise in bankruptcies and more restructurings in the U.S. shale oil industry. So until these guys get to the point where they can actually cover their capital expenditure from their cash flow, and nobody knows when that would be or at what level, I think we should just be really, really skeptical still about this whole Saudi America narrative. And, and I think if they do get to that point ever, it would be at a considerably lower level of production than, than they're at now. Yeah, and people like yourself have been very skeptical of this whole idea of the U.S.'s major shale oil producer for quite some time. I know there must be a little bit of a temptation to have a bit of a victory lap or at least say, hey, you know, I've seen these dynamics coming because in the world of resources, you have to have so much fixed capital installed in order to make your production process happen. And so it's a lot easier to just keep doing what you're doing as opposed to halting immediately. And so that leads to these kind of wily coyote moments where you run off the cliff edge and you keep running. And, you know, as soon as you look down below your feet, it's just nothing but a canyon floor beneath and you start falling. But you might keep running for quite some time over nowhere. And the International Energy Agency's September oil market report just came out, and they're projecting that oil is going to take nearly a half a million barrel a day cut in 2016 from non-OPEC supply, the biggest decline in more than two decades. And this is going to be led by lower output in the U.S., Russia, and the North Sea. So does $50 oil necessarily mean that we have more oil in the world? that we have an oil glut or that we're actually going to see declining production overall globally. It's difficult to forecast either way, but what are some of your thoughts on the dynamics? Yeah, well, first of all, when I saw that report from IEA, I thought, yeah, that's kind of typical, having the courage to run out and shoot the wounded. <laughs> yeah. It, well, first of all, let's look at the EIA's data, the U.S. Energy Information Administration's data. So they just recently in August changed their methodology for estimating U.S. production. And now they're doing it on the basis of a state-level survey that's giving them much more accurate data than their previous estimates. And that showed that U.S. production got to 9.6 million barrels a day in April, so a new peak basically since the last peak in 1970, below that level, but still kind of a new peak. And so since that 9.6 in April, their latest monthly data is for June, which is 9.3. So U.S. production fell 300,000 barrels a day in two months. 
I mean, that's really significant. That's a steep fall. It'll be very interesting to see what the August and September and October data show when it comes out. You know, that data lags by a couple months, so it'll probably be December before we see the October data. But it's clear that U.S. production is already falling. And if IEA is projecting a 500,000 barrel a day decline in 2015, well, the U.S. has already done 300,000 barrels a day of that since April. So not, not a particularly bold call on their part. And also, if you look back at IEA's forecasts from a year ago or from Q4 of 2014, they were not predicting this kind of decline. So oil prices at $50 a barrel, this is really a difficult question. If you just look at inventories and prices, okay, you could say, yeah, $50 a barrel tells you there's an oil glut. And of course, the easy thing to do, which most pundits do, is they just talk about the stocks. You know, they just say, oh, well, inventories are up this week, or inventories are down, or inventories are up more than we thought they were going to be last week. But those are very short-term metrics, and they're not really important. They don't really tell you very much about the trajectory of oil prices. They don't tell you very much about how much of a glut you really have. John Kemp of Reuters actually did a really interesting piece this week about the way that refineries actually operate and how many days of supply they can keep on hand at any one time. And it's not very much. So, you know, stocks, or rather inventories as they're often called, $50 a barrel, does that tell you that you have an oil glut? Not necessarily. Because if you look at other metrics, for example, spare production capacity, you might get a totally different point of view. You know, global oil production spare capacity now is down to about 2%, and almost all of that is in Saudi Arabia. And one could legitimately question how much of that production that Saudi Arabia actually has can actually be brought online in a quick period of time. So in the past, when you get down below that 2% level, you tend to get price spikes. So if you just look at $50 a barrel and you think that that's an indicator of whether or not there's an oil glut, you could be wrong because below 2%, you are now essentially maxed out on global oil production. Everybody in the world right now is pumping just about full out in order to maintain their incomes, even when it doesn't really make sense for some producers to keep pumping at those low prices. Even if it causes them to lose money in terms of profitability, because they just have to have the income. So we've also got a rising risk of a price spike building. And if you look at how much CapEx has been slashed around the world over the past year, about $200 billion, I've heard, which would have resulted in future production, you know, say 10 years down the line from now, then you've also got a rising risk of future shortages and price spikes due to supply demand imbalances in the future. You know, you could easily, if demand were to pick back up again, and we do not in fact slip into this global deflationary vortex, we could easily find ourselves a couple years down the line. And it may not even be that far in the future. It could be three years, it could be less, where supply actually falls short of demand and we get another big price spike. So I'm very skeptical about calling this an oil glut. I think what we have right now is prices that are far below where they need to be to sustain future oil production. And that's really a function of the trade. It's a function of the narrative. It's a function of 
producers trying to protect their incomes at all costs. It's not really an accurate reflection of what, you know, sort of the econ 101 supply demand balance would show you. A lot of what you're describing, Chris, sounds a lot like the 2007 housing bubble with everyone trying to get as much packed into these funds where they would lump mortgages together and and just make as much money as they could out of this failing industry. Is this going to be another too big to fail kind of situation with oil companies and and these financial banks just failing left and right? Are we going to see another 2007 going on? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting analogy, just sort of in the sense of, I don't know, human mentality, perhaps, or behavior. I don't think the analogy really holds in terms of the characteristics of the market. Oil is very much a global market and it's financed globally. It would be very difficult to generate a real analog to the mortgage-backed security bubble in the U.S. on a global oil market. However, I do think that there have been a lot of finance, there's been a lot of lenders that have taken on a lot more risk in being exposed to oil and gas than they probably should have over the last few years. I do think they will be forced to take some losses if oil prices remain low. I doubt that there would actually be any sort of a bailout for them. And a lot of people would have argued and and did argue that there never should have been a bailout for the banks either in 2007, 2008. So perhaps the global financial institutions in 2007, 2008, the problem wasn't just that they were exposed to these mortgage-backed securities. It was all the leverage, and it was just leverage on top of leverage on top of leverage. It wasn't just the mortgage-backed securities. It was the credit default swaps. It was all these derivative instruments that created so much leverage that everything, in fact, was all connected and everything was, in fact, too big to fail. I don't think we have that same kind of leverage and interconnectedness in the oil markets. I think it's it's really a very different beast. And so, for example, all the small U.S. shale gas and oil producers could go bankrupt tomorrow and just stop producing. And it would result in uh, maybe a two or uh, ultimately a three million barrel a day decline in global production. And that would create a price spike, but then the global oil markets would adapt and we'd go back to paying $4.50 a gallon here in California. So I don't see it as being that sort of a too big to fail kind of a problem. Yeah, I think the interesting part about all of these major agency forecasts, whether it's the Energy Information Administration in the U.S. or the International Energy Agency, there's never been a situation where there's so many precarious drillers that have to rely on credit dynamics. And so all of these production forecasts into the next year, they could end up being turned on their head because as a lot of these producers are defaulting and going under, it's not like these dynamics are included in the model at all. And so production could decline a lot faster if that is what ends up happening. But we've been talking a lot about oil for the last few minutes. Just to close out and to give our listeners a bit more of a taste of the range of energy issues that you're going to cover, is there anything else you want to touch on related to energy transition, renewables, grid power, anything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Energy transition is a very broad subject, as I said in the opening. 
And there's just so many different dynamics of it that are playing out in different ways. And it's really very different from country to country. So in the United States, we have a rather famous collapse of the uh, coal industry. And we also have a very significant phase out of coal that's been underway for years now, really. There's a variety of reasons for that, which I explore in, in the first episode of the show. But carbon emissions is really only the latest of a long string of those reasons. And I think on a more enduring way, the real risk to the coal industry in the United States is the rise of renewables, because they're basically just getting to the point where they can price out coal. So that's super interesting for the U.S., just all the dynamics of how that's happening. That's also beginning to happen worldwide. If you go back four or five years ago, for example, countries like India were planning, you know, these multi-gigawatt, massive coal-fired power plants. Those did not materialize. There was just simply too much capital that needed to be raised to get those plans off the ground. What did materialize is a lot of small solar systems being built up. And that's continuing to accelerate. And that's just looking at coal power on the grid. Look at Africa, for example, another subject that we touch on in, in a later episode of the podcast. A lot of what's really going on there is not grid power at all, but it's people who never had any grid power swapping out a nasty, expensive, polluting kerosene lantern that they use for light at night for a little solar lantern, which pays for itself in a matter of weeks. Fascinating what's going on in various African countries like that. And we're talking millions of units. This is not a small transition. And the impact that it can have on a very poor population of such a small thing, you know, just swapping out a kerosene lantern with a solar lantern can be huge. It can be huge in terms of the long-term education levels that people are able to achieve, what their long-term earning potential can be, what their long-term health effects will be. Just fascinating. If you take a look at, for example, energy transitions that are being formally planned and executed, like the Energiewende in Germany, all sorts of really interesting issues there. Not only how did they create that plan in the first place and why, and guess what? It had nothing to do with carbon emissions. But how did they plan it? How did they execute it? Of the things that they did to support more wind and solar on their grid, which of those techniques or measures that they took were successful and which ones might have been done differently or better? And if you look now at what they're doing to maintain their grid and to keep it reliable as renewables get to a higher and higher percentage, really interesting set of problems there where in some cases they've totally blown the skeptics out of the water that said that, for example, that Germany's grid could never support 20% renewables. But it's also resulted in a kind of a new set of market strategies that are evolving as time goes on as the negotiation between the grid power industry and the grid operators and the German government and the people continues in dialogue for them to figure out how they're going to get to the next step, how they're going to get to 50% of their grid power from renewables. I mean, these are not easily answered questions. There's no script to follow. There's no established plan. Nobody's really sure how it's going to work. 
And so one of my objectives with the podcast was to really dig into those difficult questions that nobody knows the answer to and explore these different strategies that are being floated and, and in some cases tested. So lots of interesting stuff going on in that area. And then, of course, in petroleum, how do we get off of liquid fuel vehicles and start moving toward renewably powered electricity. And there's just a whole host of interesting problems there. And it's not just about electric vehicles, although that could be a big part of it in the long term. Ultimately, I think it'll probably have a lot to do with switching to rail, which is something I've been saying for years. And then just in terms of efficiency, for example, that's a really big part of executing an energy transition. You know, the first step and everyone has recognized this for a very long time, is to reduce the total amount of energy that you need to generate and then figure out how you can produce that part that's left using as much renewable power as possible. So if you get into the question of, of how do you support more efficiency measures, how do you generate the capital to do that, how do you test it, how do you make sure it works, there's a whole interesting set of questions involved with that. So, yeah, lots of interesting subjects. I will touch on oil and gas from time to time because it is a part of the whole picture, but that's not really going to be the focus. The focus is about energy transition and how do we get it done and who's got the good ideas and let's test them out and let's see what's working and what isn't. Yeah, well, Chris, you've got a release schedule coming up here where the first full episode of the Energy Transition Show will be out on the 23rd of September, and you've got weekly shows lined up for quite a few weeks after that. So listeners to the Extra Environmentalist podcast will be able to find those in our regular podcast feed, at least the first few, but you'll also have your own podcast feed that is going to be at energytransitionshow.com and on Twitter at transition show is the handle. Anything else you want to say to our listeners today about how they can find the show? No, that'll do it. I just hope that people will check it out and geek out and tell their friends and send us their feedback. Tell us what they like, what they don't like, and what sort of questions they're interested in having us explore in the future. Yeah, I think I would argue and make a strong case that there's never been a more interesting time in global energy systems. And that's not just because I'm totally a nerd in that area. It's because <laughs> there's a lot of just fascinating dynamics going on, like the ones we've touched on in our conversation today about oil markets, producers, shale oil, everything involved with grid power and transition in various countries. So never a better time to have the kind of focus that you do on the Energy Transition Show in covering all these things in a detailed way. I couldn't agree more, Justin. We are yeah. very excited to have Chris and his amazing energy show coming online to the Extra Environmentalist Network, and we hope that everyone checks it out and sees what quality stuff Chris is going to put out there. And I wanted to say that I'm very grateful to you guys for putting the idea out there in the first place and sponsoring it and producing it and making it all happen, because I no doubt would have not done the show without you. So thank you. All right. Well, we'll look forward to hearing from you over the next few weeks on the Energy Transition Show. I have no doubt that from time to time we'll check in with you on the Extra Environmentalist podcast as well. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. Well, this old Rick once had some roughnecks. This old Rick once had a crew. 
Now it's got a bunch of weevils and they don't know what to do. This old derrick's a getting shaky and the pump's about washed out. And the driller shakes and trembles when the pusher walks about. Ain't I gonna need this rig no longer, ain't I gonna need this rig no more. Ain't got time to paint the drawers, ain't got time to wash the floors, ain't got time to oil them motors. Hard to fix the spinning chain Ain't I gonna need this rig no longer I'm a getting ready to make a change Well, my old driller lies asleep And he don't know he's gonna leave Else he'd wake up in the doghouse And hit moaning, groaning, grieve But his drilling days is over Ain't gonna run the rig no more They done made up his time When the flocks went through the floor Ain't I gonna need this rig no longer Ain't I gonna need this rig no more Ain't got time to paint the drawers Ain't got time to wash the floor Ain't got time to all them motors Hard to fix the spinning chain Ain't I gonna need this rig no longer I'm a getting ready to make a change And that closes out our conversation with Chris Nelder of the Energy Transition Show and also with Donnie McClurkin, author of How on Earth. So yeah, the news is out. We are launching a series of partner shows that will be part of the Extra Environmentalist or XE network. It's an exciting thing that we've been working on since the beginning of this year. And it's great to finally be able to talk about it with our listening audience because there's been a lot of work on the back end that's only just now going to be visible to a lot of people. That's true. We've been thinking about this idea for a lot longer than this year. I mean, we've been thinking about this idea for many years. And it's really only this year that we've been able to put some some money behind it and put some resources behind it and really get it off the ground. And I'm super stoked to have it finally going. And couldn't think of a better show to start off with than a Chris Nelder energy show. This guy knows his stuff, man. Yeah. And the one thing that we've always taken away, whether we're going to a conference or hosting an interview and talking to so many people about all the challenges in our modern world and these questions of transition and sustainability and thinking about the aspects of an environmentalist perspective on human society is that there's just too much to cover out there. But in making these shows, we've learned so much about producing podcasts and we sure know a lot about what not to do in producing podcasts <laughs> Uh, through hard <laughs> lessons that we've learned. And so we can help some really amazing people get up to speed on how to produce really great quality shows with a much more, I guess, compressed learning curve, you might say. They won't have to make as many of the same mistakes that we have. Yeah, so we're able to leverage all of our mistakes and help other people not make the same ones. And we can give feedback and really use a lot of the same production methods that we do on this show to really help tell the story about so many other really interesting issues that we just don't have time to get to on The Extra Environmentalist. Yeah, all united around a vision of an extra environmentalist perspective looking in on the world and also through just making better media of realizing that in today's world of modern communications technology, there are very important aspects in producing good quality media that come with skill, but the actual equipment of microphones and computers and video cameras are cheaper and more accessible than ever. 
And so if we can put those in the hands of the right people, I think we can do a much better job than any of our corporate media examples out there of producing intelligent educational material to really help take public discourse to the next level. And even if that seems a little ambitious, maybe we can just take your dinner table conversation to the next level. (laughs) If we can raise that conversation between you and your grandmother to that next level, I think we've done our job here. And Justin, you know, I'm really excited about having a whole network of shows that are dedicated to talking about the things that we think about all the time here and that that we talk about on a regular basis to really dive really deep into stuff that we've we've only just grazed the surface of. You know, we've we're talking about energy right here, but there's dozens of really fantastic shows that we can make that's going to take your conversations, your thought processes and the way that you live your life just to that next level and make you a little bit more aware of things that you didn't really know about before. Yeah, and produce mini-series and educational series that help to really wrap all of these concepts of this global change process that we're all undergoing into a more understandable process. And as we move through the end of 2015, as the year closes out, you'll see more information about some of these other partner shows that are being launched. You can find Chris's show at energytransitionshow.com, but you'll also see some revamping on extraenvironmentalist.com, which has not started yet. It will start in the near future. And then as that evolves into its next stage, you'll see some more shows coming out and more announcements being made from that perspective. But don't worry, the Extra Environmentalist, as it exists now, will still be here at sporadic time frames, whether that's you know a show once a month or around that time frame. That's what we're aiming for. But our vision is that into next year, we'll start launching the trial subscription phase where people can subscribe to our network and we haven't figured out all of what that means or what a price point might be. It might be about 7 or $8 a month or so that you subscribe or something like that to hear some of the kind of premium content. So maybe Chris's show comes out once every week, but only one of those weeks is available to free subscribers. And the rest of those shows, you have to be one of the network subscribers. We're thinking about all sorts of fun little business models. Like if you tell five of your friends, you get a a free month of episodes. Or if you pass along a a specific link code, then you're going to get a free t-shirt or something like that. We have all sorts of little fun ideas for how we want to structure the the network. But the idea behind it is we want to make it something that people who listen to it are supporting. I think that right now is the big model that we see media moving to, where people are paying the price of a cup of coffee or a meal for one month of content. And when we offer, you know, five or six shows to somebody looking for some content, this is going to be a way to really support the things that you care about and the messages that are meaningful in your life and are going to be able to produce this kind of stuff on a regular basis. And then this is really, I think, the, the model of media that's going to be the norm going forward, getting away from commercials, getting away from large sponsorship deals and to really making independent media that works for you and for the people that you care about and for the topics that you really care about. Yeah, I think we are reaching a phase in the world of podcasting where 10 years ago, back in, say, 2005 or or 2006, it was easier to just get one of the newer, cheaper microphones and record a show. 
But now there's so many podcasts out there that are putting tons of work into their production, and it's really inspiring the level of quality that we're hearing. So thinking about the important topics that we cover on the Extra Environmentalist that you can't find in other places, we want to give that same level of attention and quality and same level of production techniques to those topics. And the only way to do that is with some kind of ongoing subscription level. So we've been blown away at the generosity of our listeners and donating to the show over the past five years. And what it tells us is that the feedback we always get, in addition to the donations, is we want more stuff. We want more content. And we wish we could devote more time to the show. But now, with launching a series of network shows coming up into the next year, we'll be able to not just devote more of our time to the show, but devote more of other people's times to it as well. Putting the means of high-quality media production in their hands of really talented people who are capable of doing it all around the world. And it's all started with all of you who are listening and all of you who have been donating to the show and telling your friends about it and spreading the word all these years that have been able to get us to this point. So we're really grateful for that. Jess and I have been blown away by the support we've gotten with the Extra Environmentalists, and we've been really happy to be able to bring this message that we don't hear in media all the time to our listeners who have been so very dedicated and so very generous with their support and their time and their comments. This has been such a labor of love for us, and to be able to expand this offering to the world in a much larger way is also something we're extremely excited about. And the opportunity to bring media to people it's the opportunity to bring ideas and new media around ideas that have in the past not been so accessible is also something that we're really looking forward to. And just you can't wait for this thing to blow up like I think it will. Yeah, we can absolutely make a show that maybe there's two, three thousand people who really want to hear that information in the whole world and make a really good one that makes sense with a kind of standard subscription model of just you pay for the network and not only do you get that show, you get all these other shows as well that maybe you're not as interested in but are still good that you listen to occasionally. So even if you're only into one show or all the shows, it'll make a lot of sense in the way that we're putting it together. We could never do this show without the extremely generous support of the folks who have been listening for the last few years and sending in money. And the most recent donors have been fantastic as well. So we'd like to give a shout out to those folks as well. So big thanks to Stephen out in Australia. Thank you so much, Stephen, for that generous donation. We really appreciate all of our Down Under listeners who listen ahead of time. They're a day ahead of us, so they're always listening a day ahead. Thanks to Wally in Durham in North Carolina, a big friend of the show. So thank you for donating, Wally. Really generous of you to to donate to us. And Stephanie, my neighbor here actually in Durham, thank you very, very much to Stephanie. And Wally is actually my coworker. So thank you, Wally, as well. You guys are really big friends of the show because you're my friends, and that's super amazing that you guys would think to support this little podcast thing that we do over here at the Action Environmentalist. So thank you. So much to those two folks, especially because I know them personally. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking about the show over the last few years, I know that one of our episodes that's received more downloads than about any other was our interview with Stephen Jenkinson a, a few years back. And one of our fantastic listeners, Eric, he sent us an email and included a link to his interview with Stephen Jenkinson in the literary magazine, The Sun. 
talking about a lot of the themes we covered on that podcast on the insanity of our current culture and the possibility of a saner one through coming to grips with things like mortality and responsibility and joy and grief. And what was really interesting is actually in working with Chris Nelder and putting his show together, Chris had his hands on a copy of The Sun and found a mention of us in Stephen Jenkinson's interview with Eric. And it's just really cool to find all those little cascading things that you can't ever predict or expect that just pop up when you start doing interviews like this and people start listening. So thanks, Eric, for putting that piece together on Stephen Jenkinson, finding him through our show, and to Stephen for mentioning us in the interview. That was really cool to read that. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. I I do enjoy those death interviews a lot. Those are some of the best stuff we've done for sure. If you want to hear more episodes of The Extra Environmentalist, be sure to check out our website over at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Find us on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, or on SoundCloud. You can also find our tweets on Twitter and our Facebook updates over at our Facebook page. Leave us a voicemail message that we'll be sure to play on the show just like this one. When the politicians that lags got dollar signs in their eyes and it looks like they're looking to cash out. That's when we go to our pickle barrel and pull out a bunch of sauerkraut. Cause we got ground up grassroots solutions to global systemic failure. We've got ground up grassroots solutions to global systemic failure. Thank you. Uh, thanks for your uh, permaculture show and the resilient economy show pretty appreciate that and uh try to send some uh did dogecoin digibucks but uh can't figure out what your address is and uh, the the cia and the nsa and the fbi and the dea are all trying to keep me from contacting you man and i and i know i'm just paranoid but uh but you know just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not not out to get you Okay, well, I hope y'all are having a blessed day. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> so thanks for that voicemail, Danny. Are you sure that was Danny Dudnells? He didn't say his name. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was. It sounded like him. Yeah. That sounded a lot like Mr. Dudnells there. So I'm like 99% sure that was him. He didn't leave his name, but pretty sure it's him. Yeah. I mean, there's so, only one guy that sounds just like that. <laughs> and it's Danny Dudnells. So thank you for calling, Danny if that was you, which I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, like 95%. More like 99. There's that 1% chance. Yeah, 1%. Yeah. So yeah, thanks to everyone for listening to episode number 89. We're actually going to start rolling out next week all of these shows with Chris. So we'll be back in October with a new episode of The Extra Environmentalist with more skits, more interviews, everything that we enjoy making and you enjoy listening to. At least we're pretty sure you enjoy listening to it if you've made it this far in the episode. That's right. So thank you so very much for being a part of The Extra Environmentalist family. These are some very exciting times to be an Extra Environmentalist. So make sure to share this with your grandmother, share it with your your mother, and share it with your great-grandmother because extra environmentalists is for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely.